Introducing the new Starbucks Pistachio Cream Cold Brew. Silky Pistachio Cream Cold Foam tops our bold, smooth cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have joined the internet's finest podcast for music that comes from an organic vegetarian restaurant. Today, we're going to start off with a little bit of trivia indoctrination. All right, I am going to start the ceremony, so to speak, with some audio trivia. And so the theme on this one's pretty obvious. Your job is, Joe, or good listening audience, just tell me the name of the band, and the name of the song. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Track one. Track two. Get a blast you. So high in the sky. Track four. I had to leave the country. Track five. Track six. Track seven. The lovers will rise up and the mountains touch the ground. And track eight. Said I better take everything they got. Do you want to make tea at the BBC? All right. So I think the theme is pretty obvious, so you don't have to worry about guessing it. Just do your best to give me the name of the artist and the name of the song. We'll see how you do. Did you get any? Right now, I feel I feel okay about with about fifty percent of them. Okay. Not necessarily both song and artist, but I know I recognize uh, about half of them. I think they range from pretty easy to. I'd be amazed if anybody got it. So we'll see how many. Great. For my non-audio trivia round, what I'm going to do is describe a belief system that is either a cult or a band. Okay. And I'd like for you to tell me the name of the cult or the band, and that's it. That's all you need to do. All right. So you're going to tell me a set of dogma, and I just have to decide whether it's a cult or band and tell you 
which cult or which band. Correct. All right, let's do it. All right, the first one, just to kind of give you an idea of what, what I'm trying to do here. This leader started his sect in the mid to late 1970s, but his followers never even saw him in person until 2004, despite his prolific sermonizing, which was sent to all who would listen, mostly through the mail. I'm guessing that would be Jandek. It is Jandek. Yep. Thought Very I'd good. start one that um, I thought we were familiar with. All right. Softball. Warm me up. All right. The leader of this cult encourages his followers to eat only food that has been found, with a lot of it already partially eaten, and to avoid bathing at all cost. He also frowns mightily on laughing, at least for now. I think that's Charlie Manson. I think that's a family. It's not. It's actually a cult called the Brethren. Oh, okay. They are also known as the Garbage Eaters. <laughs> so, that's a real cult. <laughs> a, ro- a rose by any other name. A half-eaten chalupa by any other name. So, they have to eat garbage, and they can't laugh about it. They are not allowed to dance or laugh until Jesus comes back. Sounds like a certain grouch I know. Me? <laughs> Oh, Oscar. Yeah, if the shoe fits. Okay, here's the next one. This cult leader claims he can see someone's past and future by looking at their feet. Quentin Tarantino? Very good. (laughs) It is a Japanese cult called Honohana. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't going to get that. Got like 30,000 members. Isn't that crazy? And so he just looks at your feet and can tell your soul? He can see your past and future. All right. This group dresses up in World War II garb and tries to catch food and goods that fall from the sky. I have no idea. Is it the, uh, the, the Decemberist? It is not. No, that's good, though. It's actually a cult. It's called the John From Cult, and it's... One of the most widely reported examples of a cargo cult. So a cargo cult is a group that formed around World War II, usually right after, Mm. on islands where soldiers were having food and shipments dropped from planes to them. So they they believe that performing these same rituals, they will then receive more cargo. Sort of a real-life, the gods must be crazy type situation. Yes. All right. Like many cult leaders, this one claims to be from outer space, and the leader could very well be the most convincing of all of the leaders who claim to be from outer space. In front of followers and outsiders alike, he was always adorned with clothes from his home planet and would speak in tongues in front of non-believers. This be Sun Ra? I thought maybe you would go there. Zolar X? Zolar X. That's it. Oh, okay, good. I knew they had their own language. This cult, led by a guy who calls himself Yannick, was started as an offshoot of a prayer group for teenagers. It broke off from the Presbyterian Church after a service was canceled in favor of watching the Super Bowl. Hmm. I feel like I've heard this before. I don't know. It's not the trees community, is it? No, 
It's called Twelve Tribes. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're like the Yellow Deli people. They tried to recruit me once. Really? At a Yerba Mata restaurant, yeah. Or Why did they want you? Because I have a spectacular beard. Like I, I was like wearing a beard and a flannel, which is apparently kind of what they wear. So I thought, uh-huh. oh, this guy's a shoe-in. He already has the look. <laughs> it's a true story. They wouldn't leave me alone. I couldn't eat, drink my Yerba Mata in peace. That's the one that what they do, it's not, they don't really have their own music, but they will host music like Grateful Dead and those sorts of concerts. Uh, they will host them and kind of sponsor them and recruit heavily at those concerts. So they do kind of have a tie into music. Oh, cool. I'm glad you mentioned that. All right. Uh, this cult's leader professes that spaceships with God as a passenger have come to Earth to save us all. The leader moved his flock to Garland, Texas, because Garland sounds like God's land to him. He predicted that on March 31st, 1998, God would appear in the leader's his likeness on Channel 18 of every television set in North America. Oh, I researched this one. Hold on, give me a second. I don't think he had any music. He's Asian, I think. Yes. I forget. I won't get it. The cult is called True Way Cult. True Way, yep. All right. This leader was a racist and misogynistic, and he was naked during many of his sermons. Members would bathe in his urine during services, and when he died, he was buried with whiskey and heroin. I think that's Gigi Allen. It is, yeah. All right. This cult has leaders who insist on being called generals. They follow a military-like structure inspired by the Salvation Army. Members are trained to surrender their free will and are not allowed to do anything their leaders wouldn't want them to do. Hmm. I was going to say Salvation Army. I don't know. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band? I don't know. It is called the Aggressive Christianity Missionary Training Corps. Whoa. Isn't that weird? Got two more. This cult was formed by a leader who covers his head and face with a cleansed container. He preaches to his followers about the evils of eating meat. Taking it even further, he claims to have been raised by chickens. The container he puts on his head is preferably a KFC bucket. <laughs> if that helps. Buckethead? Buckethead. There you go. <laughs> I couldn't get Morrissey out of my head, and I was just thinking, does Morrissey wear a container on his head sometimes? Last one. The leader of this cult believes he is the human incarnation of a supreme being called El Cantare, which combines Christ, Buddha, Muhammad, and a bunch of other deities to create a nine-dimensional heaven with him at the head. And it's tax-exempt in the U.S. Jeez. No idea. Um, the cult is called Happy Science. Happy Science. Wow. I think I got most of the bands. I should have got more of the cults. Yeah, you got all three. There's a lot of cults out there. Or you got all you got all four. Yeah. I just thought it'd be kind of fun to go through some of the trivia of the cults that I didn't think we would be talking about at all because there's no music involved. Especially the garbage eaters. Oh man, don't you wish the garbage eaters had a had a band? Play play the old chicken bones. 
trash can lids. That's it for trivia for this episode. I think it's time to move on to our main feature, Turntable Talk. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. The snow raged as the engine finally died, and the car slowly rolled to a stop. Returning from a concert, Dave Bixby felt the familiar darkness encroaching again. He started the agonizing walk home. The past couple years, he had felt like a shadow of a person. Carefree high school revelries of pot and beer at beach parties and band practices had suddenly changed to constricting nightmares on Belladonna and LSD. Police, psychologists, his parents, all refused to understand his emptiness. The acid trips had left him fragmented. All the people he used to know, to quote another musician, were illusions to him now. He was in hell with no way to communicate. He looked at the filthy slush on the ground as it seeped through his shoes, more and more, with each step, and he thought about giving it all up. That's when he became aware of a presence. The street was desolate except for the snowfall, but he heard a crystalline voice chime in his mind. David, I'm with you, and I've been with you from the beginning. He knew it was the personage of Christ. Dave tried to share his encounter with his friends and family, but they dismissed him as just another burnout who's hearing voices in his head. And maybe that's all he was, he even thought to himself. Feeling totally lost and alone, he turned to music and started writing songs about his life, his pain, his struggle with drugs, and his hope for something more. He wrote about 30 songs in a two-month span. Finally, a buddy from one of his former bands took Dave to a small youth prayer circle at the house of a guy named Don DeGraff. DeGraff understood and believed Dave and prayed over him. Dave had never felt so spiritually engaged with anyone. His mind was beginning to clear. Bixby went home from the prayer meeting, fasted for three days, and was born anew. He had found a family who believed in him. Shortly after this awakening... DeGraff heard Bixby play his gorgeous, harrowing songs at a coffeehouse. DeGraff was taken with the power of his testament and encouraged Bixby to play at his prayer meetings. Based on the charismatic preaching of DeGraff and Bixby's sincere music, the number of kids in attendance skyrocketed. They started using church basements in local schools and colleges around Grand Rapids, Michigan, for larger meetings and gatherings. Bixby's heartened music was integral to DeGraff's message and extremely important in getting more kids to show up regularly for the meetings. The people who attended were dubbed the group. By 1969, DeGraff convinced Bixby to record an album and paid for the studio and the pressing of a thousand records. The record would be called Ode to Quetzalcoatl. It's a stark and lonely album with just Bixby and guitar. Quetzalcoatl is the Aztec serpent god of wind and wisdom. Bixby felt a connection to the myth that he would walk the earth as the protector of men with Christ-like abilities and demeanor. On the back of the record was Bixby's simple testimony. I destroyed my life with drugs and removed myself from reality, never to return. In my darkest, loneliest moment, I cried unto God for my sanity. The record was so painfully honest and immersive that people who heard it felt drawn to the destruction and redemption contained on this mesmerizing wax. 
The record would be sold by members of the group, and Bixby's music would bring more kids and more money into the fold. He had gone from lost and alone to being a messenger of God and playing in front of 300 kids a show. However, as the popularity of the music and membership of the group grew, things with DeGraff started to shift. First, he started asking people to now refer to the group as the movement, and he was to be referred to as Sir. He started telling members of the movement that God had wanted them to start peddling Amway products, a pyramid scheme for selling beauty accessories. They would also panhandle and sell combs, stating the donations were for their youth group. All the money went directly back to the movement and to DeGraff. Also, he had started making a habit of taking his younger female followers to bed. Sir compelled Bixby to record another album. However, this record was a bit different. Played with a full band, the album Second Coming was simply credited to Harbinger, with no mention of Bixby at all, despite him penning all the tunes. Several songs on the record were about the power of Sir, though they didn't specifically mention him. The cover is a painting of him embedded in sunflowers. Bixby has said that DeGraff wanted to be invisible to the world and a star at the same time. Sir had his members hanging posters, selling tickets, and selling records out of the trunks of their cars. Bixby was drawn deeper and deeper into the newfound fame. By 1972, the movement was raising eyebrows with parents, Amway, and the FBI. DeGraff quickly moved his people to various enclaves around the country, Ohio, Florida, Alabama, and Texas at first. Eventually, DeGraff had amassed enough money to buy a small ski resort in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains of northern New Mexico, which operated under the name of the Religious Order of Spectrum. During this time, men in the group had to remain celibate while the women were to bear Sir's children. Over the course of several years, Bixby stayed with DeGraff but started seeing the hypocrisy in his teaching and the exploitative nature of the movement. Eventually, he got out and started helping others get out as he felt responsible for bringing so many of them in. In 1977, he even worked with parents to find the kids at the ski resort and help them reassess their lives. He said, They just needed someone who was there to say, This no longer works. You need to make some decisions for yourself and quit being sheep. Bixby eventually faded from the spotlight as the renown of Ode to Quetzalcoatl grew as a loner folk classic, so acclaimed and rare that copies would sell for $2,000. Eventually, he was tracked down and told his story. For a couple decades, he found work playing cover songs in bars and lounges, moving from town to town. He has since helped get his records reissued, given interviews about his involvement with the movement, and played concerts to still completely enraptured audiences. The whereabouts of DeGraff are unknown. For a time, he took a small harem to Las Vegas. It's rumored that he died in a helicopter crash, but as Bixby says, who knows? The faith to move a mountain The faith to destroy a fruitless tree On faith I should be counting To walk about 
Life, if you haven't been paying attention, is complicated. When threatened with the onslaught of reality's challenges, often a flight mode kicks in. Not only are we running away from something, we also run to something, if not into something. A safe harbor, an oasis. A place that is inviting and gives a sense of family and hope. All the while, we look for easy answers to questions that are often impossible to answer. The meaning of life in a nice, manageable, bite-sized chunk. The need for collective belonging and the need for faith. Faith in something. This is why cults have been able to exist on the fringes of society for so long. And why so many people can fall into the societal traps. Once ensnared, it is difficult to untangle and escape. As one's sense of self and identity are slowly broken down. When French political scientist Alexis de Tocqueville visited the United States in the 1830s, he was most impressed by the fact that Americans of all ages, all stations in life, and all types of disposition were forever forming associations. For people that often pride themselves on individualism, Americans tend to be very tribalistic. Right now, there are thousands of cults in America, and maybe tens of thousands worldwide. While the vast majority may only have a handful of people, many flourish with significant influence through membership, money, and message. Some of these groups might be seen as quirky, but ultimately benign. Some, not so much. Cults can manifest themselves in any number of ways. They deal in the currency of human beliefs, religious, political, racist, or terroristic beliefs, and can be delivered in the form of a prophesying doomsday, increasing human potential, or enhancing one's position using New Age techniques, black magic, crystal skulls, anything on Gwyneth Paltrow's website, or other supernatural means. And while it can be difficult to know exactly when a group is truly a cult, they tend to share three things. A charismatic, often authoritative leader, an indoctrination program into a transcendental belief system, and a system of control through exploitation. These self-styled leaders prey upon the most malleable members of society. Generally, those are the most stable and predictable of us. Cults use varying means of conditioning and thought reform through deception, isolation, dependency, and fear. One of the more fascinating tools in their horrible toolbox of manipulation is the use of music. As with the case of Bixby and DeGraff, there is a strange balance and codependency of music and mind control. Music is consistently seen playing a role in the establishment and functioning of cults, radical sects, and new religious movements. It can not only bring people together, but it can also bring people into the fold. Today we will delve into the bizarre world of music made from within cults. The tunes that were left behind as relics of evidence of exploitation and excessive destructive devotion. Results that are so strange because they were almost certainly weaponized by a brainwashed minion. Music that is created in a vacuum of narcissism, removed from free thought and outside influence. Hymns to self-appointed prophets, saviors, divine conduits, Christ reincarnates, gurus, faith healers, alien leaders, and Sting, probably. We will look at music from some of the world's most infamous cults, as well as the songs that are so insular they make no sense outside of their context, even when that context itself makes no sense either. So cleanse off your chakra, 
Open your mind, pull on your robes, and lace up your Nikes. Today, the music of the Colts. Join us, won't you? Forever? We don't typically bother qualifying of much we say here, but this one's a bit different for us. We fully understand and recognize that many of the people and groups mentioned in this episode are evil incarnate. What we're trying to do is look at and study a specific tool of manipulation that many cults used in various ways. When we make light of any of the following cults, you can refer back to our Laughter Records episode when we speak about nervous laughter being helpful when discussing serious and scary topics. The use of music in sacred ceremonies, of course, has ancient roots. Ritualistic song and dance is seemingly as old as humanity itself. The euphoric chemical reactions that music instills in our brain are powerful, emotional, and addictive. And while these properties are certainly what drives our desire and passion for music, they also leave us open for manipulation from the creation of inappropriate feedback loops that link our automatic emotional reactions to stimuli that is being wielded by a long-bearded, white-robed puppet master who wants to sleep with your sister. Think Pavlov's dogs, except that instead of salivating at the sound of bells, devotees feel intense, mind-expanding pleasure at the sound of bad folk music. Coupled with a charming leader, social isolation, peer pressure, and often drugs and sex, Music is a strong controlling mechanism. The possibility for exploitation by cults through music takes many forms. The first, of course, is recruitment. Just as Ode to Quetzalcoatl appealed directly to people already feeling listless, music is a socially bonding force. Much like you might seek out people with similar cultural taste, those looking for a strong communal tie will be attracted to music that speaks to them, who they are, and who they want to be with. This is especially so if that style of music has been prohibited in the past by authority figures like parents or religious leaders. Music is also particularly good at finding a way to teach doctrine in a light and memorable way. Think about how Sunday schools across the world teach children about their faith's basic tenets through catchy, silly songs. Same idea, except the songs are meant to elucidate the reasons why the leader should be praised and needs two dozen wives. And the togetherness that you feel when you hear lots of people singing about the same set of flawed dogma creates even more of a feeling that what is being espoused is the truth. And it makes you fear questioning it, and possibly to the point of no longer finding reasons to question it at all. When cults produce their own music, it provides the opportunity to create more isolation in their ranks. They are selecting what music is acceptable for their believers, while additionally shutting out any outside influence. The outside world in this music is evil and destructive. An additional layer of control that, like many cult acts, can be seen on the surface as communal and family building, but actually is inducing dependency and forcing submission. Sometimes cults will even use tunes from popular music, but adapt the lyrics for their own purposes, much like a deranged, self-important weird owl. For example, Scum of the Earth, Westboro Baptist Church is especially fond of perverse parody songs that elaborate on their hateful garbage beliefs, such as, 
Santa Claus will take you to hell. Trust us, it's, it's not worth hearing. Music can create a sort of altered consciousness. Leaders hoping to discourage critical thought tell their followers to turn to music, chanting, rhythm, and meditation whenever they are presented with a challenge. Rather than using healthy expression of emotion or dealing with the issue by thinking about realistic steps, they have no opportunity for a reality check, instead focusing on the leader and positioning them as the answer to their problems. Songs of worship aimed at the cult leader both feed the ego and project power. The dedicatory music establishes him as an overseer, master, and leader without forcing them to actually perform any tasks. It allows them to play out a self-idolatrous fantasy of rock and roll star, but within their own personal vision of the world. If people are writing songs about someone, they must be important, right? On the more crazy end of the spectrum are the groups that believe the music has magical or scientific properties that are necessary for actual physical reshaping and transcendence. You see these beliefs in more New Age-focused groups, with a reliance on the song itself to be transformative. And while this sort of whimsical idea that music can be used for mind control might conjure images of more primitive Hassa animism, spiritual possession, trance dances, or hippy-dippy crystal-powered-out-of-body experiences... You don't have to look too far to find instances where mainstream conservative Americans believe that music could control behaviors. The hypnotism record fad, Muzak's stimulus progression, Billy Joel's records, or the backmasking satanic panic. All the same, there are definitely cults who believe music has the ability to elevate one's mind, regulate one's soul, or restructure one's body. Take, for example, this track that a group called the Wingmakers listened to as a vehicle for genetic reconstruction as provided to humankind by nice, time-traveling aliens. How's your DNA feeling, Joe? Crispy. As we discussed in our episode on the Jesus People explosion of the late 1960s, music became an integral factor in gathering and recruiting kids to convert them. This movement was soon taken to extremes as cults used the same idea but in a more dangerous, narrowly focused manner. The explosion of cults happened to coincide with the private press vanity record industry boom of the late 60s through the early 80s. An endless amount of records were pressed in tiny quantities that were entirely focused on drawing people into these factions. These records are often very boring, occasionally very funny, once in a while very terrifying, and rarely very good. Cults also have adapted further by embracing the ease of cassette distribution of the 80s the website boom of the 2000s, and, of course, modern social media where you still find online forums on platforms like Reddit, 4chan, and even YouTube channels that nudge young, impressionable people toward 
extremism through a combination of memes, conspiracy theories, and algorithm-driven playlists. Once fully enmeshed, the believers are sent out to recruit others like them with all the recruitment music videos and memes at their fingertips. Make cults great again! As we start to discuss specific groups and their records, we need to mention that we are not going to talk specifically about bands that were formed more around a commune or art collective. Even though there may be some similarities in style and approach, the lack of coercive persuasion towards an ideology means that they are a different crystal ball of wax. This would be bands like the Perth County Conspiracy, the Trees Community, Amon Duel, the Chai Yi Commune, Akron Family, the Family of Apostolic, or Wavy Gravy's Farm. Nor artists with cult-like habits and following, such as Sun Ra or Fela Kuti. We are also going to leave out records from occult figures, like Aleister Crowley or Anton LaVey. Though probably we'll be coming back to these sorts of bands at some point. And we aren't going to cover the band The Cult, so sorry if you were waiting on that. She sells Sanctuary somewhere else. By the seashore. This will be a two-part episode. Next week, we will get to some of the lesser-known, wackier cults. But in this first episode, we are going to focus on the music of a few of the world's most recognizable cults and cult leaders. Unfortunately, the most notorious of these cults established their reputation after hideous tragedy, often featuring a terrible waste of life. We won't spend much time talking to the actual cult history itself, There are about a billion podcasts and documentaries out there that have you covered on that. But we'll just mainly discuss the musical aspects of those groups. Might as well start with the granddaddy of the modern new religious movement, the sci-fi writer turned founder of the pay-to-elevate Church of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard. He likened himself a composer and producer and was said to force his devotees to patiently listen to any and all of his musical whims in what he calls the symphony of life. In 1974, he had the house band Meatbags from the Scientology Sea Org ship, the Apollo, make a whacked-out jazz fusion album under his musical direction. The album was titled The Power of Source by the Apollo Stars, and it's a frantic Afrobeat and acid jazz-tinged tour de force. Hubbard would play the entire record, complete with the dance troupe, before meetings. slice of Zenu. But he didn't stop there. In 1982, L. Ron recruited some pretty big jazz and rock names from the Scientology ranks, including Chick Corea, Stanley Clark, and Nicky Hopkins, to make a soundtrack album for the novel Battleship Earth. The record that was made under his musical supervision was called Space Jazz. Hubbard was really into a computer synthesizer called the Fairlight CMI, which cost over $25,000 at the time, and it was used extensively on the album. Along with a bunch of inexplicable horse sounds on the song Wind Splitter. (laughs) 
A few years later, he wrote a rock opera-esque soundtrack for his ten-novel series, Mission Earth, and he had albino heartthrob guitarist Edgar Winter record it. It's got some gnarly 80s cheese that sends those e-meters off the chart. Later, he gathered a few of his most famous acolytes, John Travolta, Leif Gerritsen, and Frank Stallone, or Fly to his friends, to help him spread the Dianetics gospel by singing soft rock ballads on a record called Road to Freedom. The gusto of the delivery of lines like, You are not mind or chemicals. You don't even have form. You're in a trap of senseless lies. It's time to be reborn is enough to stir the most stubborn thetan and make you get out your checkbook, which you'll probably need, as members of the COS were encouraged to buy several copies of the album to distribute to friends and family. Naturally, it is the vocal stylings of Mr. L. Ron himself that really get you exteriorizing. In an episode that will be full of terrible songs, this one might be the worst, so we're not going to play it. Just kidding, when have we ever held back on you? Here's the bigwig himself singing, thank you for listening, shortly before he dropped the body. Try not to go clear. I do not sing what I believe, I only give them fact. If they believe quite otherwise, it still will have impact. Believe it or not, the next most famous musical madman cult leader has a connection to Scientology. Charles Manson gave it an honest go in prison in the 70s, even spending 150 hours in auditing before deciding the religion was just too crazy. Let that sink in for just a moment. Of course, Manson's own helter-skelter musical ambitions might be some of the most famous in the world of cults. A self-styled songwriter, Manson was totally enmeshed and enamored with the Laurel Canyon scene, charming many prominent rockers, including Dennis Wilson, Neil Young, John Phillips, and Cass Elliot, among others. After learning to play guitar during a stint in a federal penitentiary and understanding the allure of rock and roll along with sex and drugs, he came out to L.A. and worked hard to get a record deal with some minor success. The Beach Boys infamously covered his song Cease to Exist as a 1968 B-side retitled Never Learn Not to Love, making it the second most evil song the Beach Boys ever did, right behind Kokomo. Denny took the songwriting credit, though, as he traded it from Manson for some cash and a motorcycle. Here's both versions. Never had a lesson I ever learned, but I know we all get our turn. I love you, never learn not to love you. Submission is a gift, go on, give it to your brother. Submission is a gift, give it to your brother. 
Allegedly, there is a tape of full band demos that Charlie recorded at Brian Wilson's home studio. But, like Manson, they're not likely to get released anytime soon. That joke was written more than a decade ago. I've been sitting on it. (laughs) For a brief moment, the Birds and Paul Revere and the Raiders producer Terry Melcher had agreed in principle to getting Manson a contract, but decided against it as he felt for some reason the kid might be a little too erratic. Go figure. Anyway, this shunning set into motion the horrific family murders at the Tate-Polanski home, which had until recently been Melcher's house. Before that, he was able to lay down a demo with Phil Kaufman. Kaufman actually did time with Manson before becoming a player on the scene by managing Graham Parsons and being a roadie for the Rolling Stones, Emmylou Harris, and Frank Zappa. Once everything went down, Manson begged Kaufman to put out the recordings. He raised $3,000, had 2,000 copies pressed, and released the record with the title Lie, the Love and Terror Cult in 1970. The record was distributed by the bootleg label Trademark of Quality, which was also famous for bringing Dylan's Great White Wonder to prominence. Despite it only originally selling 300 copies, slowly Manson's album was an underground hit and has grown in its dark history with a huge number of artists covering his tunes, including Guns N' Roses, Sonic Boom, Gigi Allen, Crispin Glover, Devendra Banhart, and the Brian Jonestown Massacre. Brian Jonestown Massacre's Anton Newcomb claims that he had recorded with Manson, but didn't really detail how this collaboration occurred, just explaining that he is a mystic. So it checks out. The family that he casually suggested to do his sadistic bidding had long been wrapped up in his music. They would sing his songs whilst dumpster diving for food, around the campfire at the Spawn Ranch, and of course, famously, walking to their trial. And eventually, family members on the outside would commit to tape his songs, likely at his request. The record called The Family Jams doesn't have Manson on it, but he is given credit for all the songwriting. Recorded around 1970, it wasn't released until 1997, and featured Clem Grogan, Sandra Good, Squeaky Fromm, Catherine Gypsy Cher, and others. It's crazy in the sound of delusion and devotion to their imprisoned leader. Here's the spine-tingling track, Get On Home. When you see the children, X's on their head. If you dare to look at them, soon you will be dead. Get on home, oh, oh, home, get on home. Get on home, oh, home, get on home. Come on home, little children, come on home. Honestly, for a lot of this album, if you didn't really know who the band was, you might think it was a pretty good private press album. It's worth listening to, just not backwards. There are a couple other cults that have bands that we'll be talking about on this episode and the next episode that are also pretty good. This is up near the top for me. The most skilled musician of the family was undoubtedly Bobby Beausoleil. Beausoleil had some rock and roll bona fides. 
He was in an early iteration of Love with Arthur Lee called The Grassroots, but not The Midnight Confession Guys. He then formed a free-form instrumental psychedelic group with an occult bent called Orchestra. David Laflame, later of It's a Beautiful Day, was also in the group that made a name for dark electric orchestrations like this, Punjab's Barber. After that, Beausoleil starred in filmmaker Kenneth Anger's Alistair Crowley's inspired flick, Lucifer Rising. Though the project fell apart and was shelved, listless Beausoleil fell in with the Manson family and, like an unfortunate many members of that club, ended up murdering someone. While in prison, he was able to convince Anger to let him try to record a soundtrack for the movie after Jimmy Page, Anger's first choice, wasn't up for the task. Using a band made up of inmates dubbed the Freedom Orchestra, some handcrafted electronic instruments, and a cell-made prison studio, Anger was able to create a fantastically creepy atmospheric soundtrack, which was released in 1980. Beausoleil has continued to create interesting music while serving his life sentence. How he made such an involved and intricate album in prison is, is beyond me. It really is. There are some people who you think achieve their fame through those horrible things, and there's some people who you feel like could have achieved fame and artistic expression in a much better way. Beausoleil, I think, really could have done some great things had he stayed away from Manson. Murdering someone really hindered his career. Yes. Of course, possibly the saddest chapter in the history of American cults was Jonestown. Five years prior to the end we all know about, in 1973, members of the Jim Jones-led People's Temple We're in a different world where ideals such as unity, racial equality, and social justice are being taught and practiced in a flourishing new religious movement headquartered in San Francisco. One of the members at the time was a young man named Jack Arnold Bean, whose grandmother and parents had long been devout members of the People's Temple. Bean had played in rock bands and had the look of a young hipster, so Jones asked him to reorganize and modernize the church's choir and band. Beam immediately added new material, including more modern songs and sounds, and pushed the group to play more professionally. The group reflected the diversity of the church, with people of all ages and races represented. As they became more cohesive, Jones would use them to ramp up the fervor at temple meetings before and in between his sermons. 
The songs were mostly hymns with the occasional pop hit thrown in, albeit with modified lyrics. Sometimes to make the songs more politically in line with the group's socialist beliefs, and sometimes just to have a little bit less Jesus and a little bit more Jimmy. Eventually, Beam approached Jones about getting a record cut as a fundraiser. Jones loved the idea, and the resulting album, He's Able, is a passable but typical gospel pop record. The cover features scores of choir members in blue uniforms at the Golden Gate Park. On the back, a picture of their leader with the quote, Our choir consists of people from all walks of life. We are dedicated to one common cause, making the humanistic teachings of Jesus Christ part of our daily lives. Our inspiration is a lifestyle demonstrated by our pastor, James W. Jones. The man himself appears on the record as a soloist on the song, Down From His Glory. Beam recalls Jones came in around midnight, surrounded by bodyguards, never taking off his sunglasses, and belting out the song with the zest of a man singing of his own divinity, like Frank Sinatra. A man of sorrows, tears, and Allegedly, 40,000 copies were pressed and thousands were sold, though this honestly seems like an overestimate based on the rarity of the record these days. It's like they must have thrown 38,000 into the bay. The production sounds professional and has some not abysmal tunes, though probably would have been lost in the annals of time if not for the bleak future that awaited many members of the choir in the jungles of Guiana. Beam left the group before they moved to South America, but many members of the choir were at Jonestown. Some were even in the commune's house band, the Jonestown Express, that was playing the night that Congressman Leo Ryan came to investigate Jim Jones's soon-to-be fallen utopia. Father Yode, formerly Jim Baker, might have the strangest life story of any musician, cult leader, or maybe just person in general. While his history is far too vast and labyrinthine to cover here, some of the highlights include questionable World War II medals, a Swedish massage school, failed Tarzan tryouts, jiu-jitsu mastery, sandal shops, not one but two self-defense murders by ninja chopped to the throat, three alleged bank robberies, a purple Rolls Royce, lots of pills, LSD, 
booze, and broken families, a shifty guru named Yogi Bajan, and one very successful organic vegetarian restaurant on the Sunset Strip called The Source. This is all before starting and leading a Los Angeles cult that would make some of the best psychedelic music of the era. The immensely hip health food restaurant that was patronized by a who's who of Hollywood elite would be a springboard for a newly christened Father Yod to practice and teach a new form of mysticism that would cull practice, symbiology, and fashion from any number of transcendental cultures, including Hindu, Native American, Egyptian, Druid, Norse, Templar, and apparently Atlantean. Unlike some of the dirtier, earthier look of other cults, Yod was insistent on him and his following looking sharp. He sported a leisure suit slash robe hybrid, complete with giant medallions, ridiculous hats, and a beard that would make Santa Claus blush. He soon recruited ranks, especially good-looking girls, from his spiritual training sessions, which included cold showers, yoga, and imbibing the sacred herb, as a means of passage to the halls of Amanthia, a mental journey to the center of the earth. He also got married, first to just one woman, Robin, who he convinced to come with him to an ashram for some kundalini yoga instead of going to her friend Sharon Tate's house for an informal get-together. However, he then got married to 13 other women, dubbed his spiritual wives, several of whom were underage. They all lived in a rented mansion with a bunch of other devotees and hangers-on, funded entirely by the restaurant. Things with Father Yod got a bit more intense as he started getting into Golden Dawn sexual magic, preaching about an upcoming apocalypse, and he began calling himself Yehoah, which was his term for God. Eventually, the group got strong-armed out of California and moved to Hawaii, where Yehoah decided to try hang gliding for the first time without any help or training whatsoever. He died from injuries sustained during the crash landing, a la a Togo-wearing Wiley Coyote. And all that would be crazy enough, but during this time, Father Yod and his followers would record relentlessly under a myriad of different band names. Father Yod and the Spirit of 76, Children of the Sixth Root Race, Yahuwah 13, Firewater Air, Savage Sons of Yahuwah, Breathe, and my favorite, Yod Ship. Excuse me, I'd, I'd just like to ask a question. What does God need with the starship? The band's origins lay in the collection of musicians that were gathering at the Source home. Father Yod sent his followers out with $30,000, probably of their parents' money, to buy instruments and recording gear and set up a makeshift studio in the garage. After morning spiritual boot camps, he would gather the band to start rocking out and was always recording. After some major labels rejected Yod's advances, he took the show on the road and played a bunch of high schools and colleges with a constant eye out for the future potential associates. Rolling up to a rock and roll concert in a Rolls Royce, flanked with lots of great-looking women, wearing his finest, double-breasted robe, probably helped his cause, and certainly didn't hurt his already engorged ego. The band's lineup was constantly changing, but normally had the Source family members, Jin Aquarian on guitar, 
Octavius Aquarian on drums, and Sunflower Aquarian on bass. The music is entirely improvisational, with no album taking longer to compose than the time it took to record. The sound veered from intensely powerful to laughably amateur. There was the occasional milk-toast folk stuff, but when the band went off, they sounded like a proto-krautrock heavy acid trip. Lots of tribal drumming and freak-out guitars with Father Yod chanting, proselytizing, chortling, riffing, and on rare occasions, singing. He also played a mean kettle drum. There are some records that were recorded under Yahuwah's spiritual guidance, but without his singing. Sky Saxon of the Seeds was a member of the cult for a hot minute and played on a few tracks. The bands under his umbrella even continued recording after Yod's bout with gravity. It's rumored that 65 albums worth of music was recorded, though only nine were ever actually pressed and in incredibly small quantities. These were sold at the restaurant for 10 bucks a copy or given out amongst the commune. They've become some of the most sought-after records from the psychedelic era and command incredibly high prices if you can even find them. Fortunately, tapes of the unreleased records and several of the main albums are slowly being reissued by Drag City. There is a world of madness to sift through, so here are a few of the records that we think you should be listening to first. Yod's debut album, Kohotek, was recorded and released in 1973. The backup singer Shine and the band is decent on the instrumental sections, but play with less conviction when Yod is singing. For this album, Yod is not the answer. His voice is affected, but he's really good at improvisations. His singing comes off like a sermon, but not a sermon from the mound or in a church. Take away the music, and it's a sermon you'd hear in the parking lot of a Circle K at bar time. He never runs out of gibberish to tell us. All you need to do is call his name. All you have to do is call his name. In 1974, Yod and Company recorded and released seven albums four using the name Yahowah 13, and three using Father Yod in the spirit of 76. The album All or Nothing at All was the first one of that year, and it's the first one in which she doesn't make an appearance. He may have been in the can. It's a very good album on its own, but as a Yod album, it's a letdown. It's decent folk psych with pleasant singing and music, which ends up being disappointing. The next album, however, is one of our favorites. It's called Contraction, and it has a much more confident preacher at the helm. His rants nearly make sense, and the band has gotten even better, adding more funk and tribal rhythms. This album comes closer to actually containing distinguishable songs, but it's, it's basically one long song with a couple blips that may not have been recorded at exactly the same time. By the end of the song that makes up 90% of the album, Yod reaches his climax with a wailing you need to hear to believe, but please don't believe it all.
For the next album, Expansion, Yoda and the gang pick up right where they left off with Contraction. It may have even been recorded during the same acid trip. Contraction was the stronger material and probably enticed more members into the madness. Indestructible one Is it in about time You will have fun The next two releases in 1974 are absolute peak Yod worship. I might have joined the fold just to get my hands on, on these two records. The first of them is the best album I've heard by the group, and it's called I'm Gonna Take You Home. The album cover shows Yod in mid-procreative functions. Not only is a member of the flock pictured, but Yod's own member makes its first appearance. That alone is worth the album. Oh, and it's a gatefold, obviously. Songs finally show up on this album, too, and the songs are incredible. The band is tight and has more of a krautrock edge to it, and Yod is full of ranting and proselytizing at its most mystifying. The next album of the year is called Penetration, and it's another barn burner. The band is cracking, and Yod is in full control of his member. From there, it's mostly downhill. There are three more respectable releases immediately following Penetration, with two being released in 1974. These are Savage Sons of Yehoah and Yehoah 13. Sons doesn't have Yod on it, so it's a hard pass, unless you're only interested in good musicians jamming without wretched screaming. Yehoah 13 is the commercial album. He was clearly trying to be more radio-friendly with this one. There are songs on it instead of a song on it. They also seem more thought through and planned in some way. The last one we're going to mention is the best Yod album after Gonna Take You Home and Penetration. It's called Principles for the Children. Yod is back in his sweet spot with basically one song on the album. On this album, Yod is indeed the answer, (laughs) rather than simply a question that goes unanswered, as he was on his last couple albums. Hear him scream and picture him gesticulating in his nearly open rope. In your mind, you can see clearly the only member that was allowed to get out.
Teens for Christ was one of the multitude of gatherings that formed in the Jesus People wave, but was soon twisted into one of the most heinous and far-reaching cults, called the Children of God, or eventually the Family or the Family International. Formed by David Berg, or his preferred name of Moses David, who found that if he dressed like a liberal arts hippie college professor, he could get more people to listen to his vision of spiritual revolution, apocalypse soothsaying, and distrustful message of the system and the empty-headed systemites. Soon he was using horrendously exploitative means of recruitment, in particular practice called flirty fishing, which is just as disgusting as it sounds. He was also very fond of using music, particularly aimed at youth, to draw people into the various 130 communes, or colonies, scattered across the globe. He had a big name too. Jeremy Spencer was the guitarist in Fleetwood Mac, when it was still a respectable British blues band and not a tangled ball of cocaine and hormones. After some bad mescaline trips and increasing paranoia about touring with the band, Spencer left a Dear Mick letter in his hotel room the night before a huge show at the Whiskey A Go-Go in 1971. The band and their manager searched L.A. looking high and low for their lost guitarist. Most, mostly high. But when they found him, he had taken up with the children of God and couldn't be persuaded to return to the Mac. Spencer used his rock and roll credentials to quickly rise in the ranks and was in charge of the group's musical output. It didn't take long for him to put out a record called Jeremy Spencer and the Children to sell Berg's Babble at concerts. The record is better than average Christian folk rock stuff with a really talented guitarist. Here's Can You Hear the Song. Spencer put out another album called Flea in 1979 that sounds sadly like he was trying to imitate the current Fleetwood Mac sound with lyrics spouting disturbing eschatology and not Tusk. Spencer continues to play music and be affiliated with the family. I would recommend for people out there, do not do what I did. Do not look up what flirty fishing is. Nope. Not good stuff. As Children of God's numbers rose to the tens of thousands, Berg encouraged his followers to play guitar and write music and do a lot of panhandling. Interestingly, he had his acolytes make music appropriate for their country to spread his twisted gospel. In France, a Eurovision-type band called Les Enfants de Doux were on nationwide television and had a hit single with My Love is Love. 
The organization directed followers to buy the records from the stores and then sell them on the streets in an attempt to skyrocket the record in the charts. They used similar methods with popular COG bands in Italy and Mexico. They also had a few attempts at some good old-fashioned cult rock here in the States. Check out this anti-capitalist system track, Green Magic Carpet Ride, which, according to the band, will only cost you your soul. It's from a record called The Bold Die Young, credited only to the children of God. Serial number 666 And he's religious saying in God we trust Free magic carpet rides only cost your soul Sign on the dotted line Can I read the small print? He said no As technology de-evolved Records gave way to cassettes Which soon would be a powerful tool from the cult which was now officially called The Family. They started producing a ton of tapes and posters under the label Heaven's Magic. The artwork on these tapes looks like Lisa Frank on Magic Mushrooms listening to evangelical AM radio. The music is clearly geared towards kids, sort of new wave rapture bubblegum, but with themes of anti-technology, anti-Satan, anti-New World Order, and, of course, anti-barcodes. This track called Kathy Don't Go is jangly vapor wave soul shine about the dangers of losing your soul to Satan via the grocery store scanner. Seriously. Kathy don't go to the supermarket today. Kathy don't go to the supermarket today. Cause there's a very strange man at the checkout stand. And there's a laser scanner where you put your hand. Kathy, don't go to the supermarket today. Honestly, despite the pure evil that is behind this cult and this propaganda, I can't help tapping my toes. It gives me happy feet. They are easily available on the internet, but you have been warned. David Koresh might be the perfect example of how cult leaders get themselves just as mixed up about being rock and roll messiahs as they do about being just regular messiahs. The prolifically icky baby maker... Koresh wrestled away leadership of the Branch Davidians through some minor Uzi-centric gunplay, litigious double-crossing, and a corpse-raising contest. But before this, he had actually moved to Hollywood to jumpstart a career in music. When this failed, he moved to Waco and continued to play rock and roll music during the power struggle for Mount Carmel. 
Koresh was not just claiming to be the prophet, he was also proving it through his soft rock Christian evangelizing. Starting as a singer-songwriter who turned the inhibitions all the way down and the reverb all the way up, here's his ballad, Waiting on You. prayer sessions and local bars and he would invite other bands back to the compound to jam into the night with some pretty sophisticated equipment at one point he even had shirts printed up that said david koresh god rocks there's a clip of him holding a guitar and he he says this is my psalm 15 guitar except it has like a naked woman and a pegasus on it Not quite up to my Bible, but I'm pretty sure there's no Pegasus in the Psalms. Here's the most prescient and famous track, Madman in Waco. It was actually probably written about his rival for the control of the congregation, George Roden, who did incidentally kill someone with an axe. It's true that Koresh turned up his flying V, set up his band, and blasted some rock and roll rebellion in the form of a cover of the calls, I still believe, at the ATF forces occupying his land shortly before they cut the power. Not sure if that was a psychological tactic, or they weren't big fans of the call. Famously, the ATF and FBI returned the favor by constantly blaring a hideous hodgepodge of sound back at the sect in hopes of forcing surrender. The cacophony was a mashup of Tibetan chants, bugle calls, Christmas carols, Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made For Walkin', telephones ringing, the sounds of rabbits getting killed, and achy breaky heart, which is pretty much the sound of rabbits getting killed. There's an oddball record called Waco by artist Nick Van Wert, where he enlists musicians to musically recreate this torture mixtape. Not recommended for your summer chill barbecue playlist or that girl you've had an eye on. Of course, Koresh's music didn't really take off until long past the aftermath of the disastrous raid. It now dwells on the internet, naturally. Which ATF guy do you think, like, when they're gathering ideas on which awful sounds they should put together to play at the 
The branch Davidians raised its hand and said, I've got a tape of some rabbits getting killed. Do you think that would be any use? Ooh, ooh, boss, I got achy, break your heart. <laughs> I think the AM radio was just really bad in Texas. Another strange chapter in the horror gone viral archives would be the life of Shoko Ashihara. His doomsday cult, Am Shinriko, was propelled to international ignominy after the nefarious Tokyo subway sarin gas attack, which was trying to set off an apocalypse. The cult believed in Ashihara's weirdo prophecy of a coming World War III Armageddon instigated by a nuclear attack from the U.S. Ashihara used esoteric fringe bits of Hinduism and Buddhism, along with snippets of the Book of Revelation and Nostradamus' writing, to craft a doctrine that can generously be called nonsensical. He claimed to be both partially Vishnu and totally Christ, and that he could take away the sins of his followers and keep them alive through the upcoming day of reckoning. As loony as this all sounds, he proved to be masterful in his recruitment using yoga, anime, writing, and mind control techniques, leading his believers to undertake all sorts of violent activity. He had his followers make off-brand J-pop music for other minions to listen to while they were developing the nerve gas, including this song called, seriously, Extreme Discipline. After the attack in 1995, Ashihara instantly became the world's most famous villain while hiding from law enforcement. He used Russian radio stations to broadcast across Japan. He'd spread Alm propaganda, declare his innocence, and drop a couple of tunes, including this disturbing earworm called Lord Death's Counting Song. Ashihara was executed by hanging in 2018, but splinter factions of his cult still continue to terrorize today. That Lord Death's counting song is haunting and it is calming in a very scary way. In the context of that we're trying to be thorough and really looking at how cults use music, I think it's important to kind of include him, especially with him using the radio and making basically some sort of strange work music for people. But man, this guy is, was totally creepy. And he was just very powerful in a scary, scary way. Yeah. Made famous by a recent documentary, The Rajneesh Movement, 
that circled around the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, a.k.a. Osho, gained prominence when they moved from India to a remote town in Oregon, causing all sorts of drama. Thousands of red-clad Rajneeshis moved into a compound following the teaching of their Rolls-Royce driving sex guru. What's with these guys and Rolls-Royces? And being sex gurus. Things turned sour as the group took over the local government, attempted to assassinate a U.S. attorney, and added salmonella to the salad bars at several local buffets, poisoning 750 people in 1984. Eventually, Osho was deported, but his school of philosophy is still active today. The group provided vacuous New Age meditation music for years on cassettes, CDs, and now online. However, at one point prior to moving to the States, the cult had a pretty groovy Beatles in India rock sound as heard in this track, Oh You Brought Me Back in the Ring by Ashram Music Group. Even still, while we've covered hugely evil actions taken by these notable societal misfits, the most troubling aspect of cults is that they are so pervasive in society. For every Marshall Applewhite, whose notoriety propels them to household recognition and disdain, there are hundreds of small-time proselytizing hacks that are wreaking havoc on the people that fall into their backwoods and basement cults. Heck, there's one down the road from me that preaches that every person has a direct portal to God that simply needs to be plunged of all earthly deceits, whatever that means. We skip that booth at Trick or Treat. <laughs> Give them a wide berth. We will continue our exploration of the music of cults next episode by looking into the even stranger and more insular borderline denominations and New Age hives and, of course, the cacophony of madness that they produce. When we were researching these, we always kind of go through and look at how much the records cost. Some of these things are ridiculous. Private press records, if they're good, can often cost a lot of money. But a lot of these aren't good at all. It's just really that memento of having a cult leader or a killer or rapist record or something. It's very strange. Some of them are good. But those aren't the ones that are super expensive. Like the Yahua albums have been reissued by Drag City. They're not that, that expensive. It's the really bad ones, I think, that I found that were impossible to get because of the price. 
And a lot of them are bootlegged because I think people pull the stuff from the internet or they pull it from old CDs or tapes. So a lot of the stuff is bootlegged. But yeah, it's ridiculous how much people pay and want for this music. And some of it is good, but most of it is absolute garbage. Well, just wait till next episode, too. There's going to be some horrendous music. There, there's some good stuff out there, too, that's worth hearing. But for the most part, it is very bad. Because it's not, it's not really supposed to be good. I mean, it's, it's, it has many purposes, but quality is not one of them. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's about getting people to do your bidding or people to feel like they could belong to you. It's utilitarian. It's like a commercial that is designed with a specific demographic in mind to capture them and bring them in. And we talked about this a little bit, but a lot of these guys just have that that rock star delusion. It's like they have no business, you know, playing music at all. They just, the same reasons that led them to lead a group of people to their own means or to their own ends is the same thing that allows them to think that they need to have lots of people listening to their music. And by rights, neither of those things should be happening. One person that we do want to acknowledge is Micah, who has a show on WFMU called Music of Mind Control with Micah, which is an exploration into the musical output of religious cults, new religious movements, and individuals of a spiritually inspired and divine nature. It is this stuff like tenfold, all sorts of crazy stuff. And he's he's on every Tuesday, 6 to 7 Eastern. A lot of stuff that we've kind of pulled out, we we kind of found through him. But if you're into this stuff, he does a great job. He'll play the songs and talk a little bit about the Colts. And he's he's real funny and dry, but he's, he's really great. And we definitely pulled a lot of stuff for the next two episodes from that radio show, which is awesome. So do need to give him his credit. All right, how about playing some songs now? Let's do it. I'm going to go first tonight, and I'm going to play a song that we talked about earlier. It is called Drug Song, and it is by Dave Bixby. I can't even think straight 
That was Dave Bixby with Drug Song, which is the opening track on the Ode to Quetzalcoatl that we talked about quite a bit. The version that I have came out in 2018. It's obviously a reissue, and the label that reissued it was called Gerson, uh, out of Spain. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly at all. Um, But because we talked so much about him and Really, the song, its I just thought it would be a good idea for people to hear how good he really is. And the song is haunting and sad, and it really does describe his journey from nothing, just feeling alone and desolate. And really, its it's a song that kind of helps define the phrase loner folk. I think this mm-hmm. is this is really it. And again, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about it because we did earlier. It's a great album all the way through. Drug Song's the first one, but every song on this is pretty good. Yeah, he's he's incredible. All right, my first song is uh, called Devotee of the Lord, and it's by Murari Band. Who's that wandering from village to village and town to town? In the airport, at the malls, and the concert at the underground. Working earnestly night and day, never accepting a penny in pay. But like the lilies of the field, he's not worried about. Painful to read. 
attraction It never attracts him It never slaves the world in men Such a fate is like poison for him With each rising and setting of the sun Death comes nearer for everyone Except for the one Who spends his life constantly preaching He's a devotee of the Lord To convince him he's wasting his time But he knows by the books he's giving He's changing the lives they're living Whatever the weather you can find him out there Whatever the people are Separating the reality from the illusion He's the body of the Lord and he's getting his rewards of of the Lord. That is a band that is part of a Hare Krishna group that runs a farm in Tennessee, a spiritual farm. And they also have a band. And this is one of those records that is entirely meant to draw people in uh, to the Hare Krishna or ISKCON beliefs. The whole album kind of sounds like a Waffle House song, you know, that you play there. It's sort of like advertising the farm. It's about how great the farm is. Come on down to the farm. You know, we have the answers to life. That song in particular, I kind of like because it sounds like Hare Krishna Steely Dan. So not a ton to say about it, but it's kind of a fun song. I think the woman's voice in particular is really strong. The guy's voice, not so much, but the whole album is just strange. It makes you feel strange to listen to it. But it's also kind of pleasant. So I guess that's what they were going after. We talked about this a little bit, but there seems to be kind of two sides to this. There are records that get put out in huge numbers because they are meant to recruit. And 
in the record, there's actually kind of a flyer with a whole bunch of like, here's books you can read. Here's how you contact us. Here's how you can get more records, you know, and everything costs something, of course, but don't lick that card. (laughs) Maybe I should lick that card. And it came out in 1979 on the Desire Tree label, which was, I'm sure, the Hare Krishna label. All right, my second song is called Witch's Will, and it's by Master Wilborn Burchette.
right, that was Witch's Will by Master Wilborn Burchette from a 1973 record grimoire guitar um, that was put out on a private press label called the Burchette Brothers. I have it on a, a Light in the Attic compilation called I Am the Center, the private press New Age Music in America 1950 to 1990, which came out in 2013. So Master Wilborn Burchette is an interesting guy. He basically was a mail-order mystic out of California who became known for his strange ads that were, you know, in the back pages of magazines like Fate Magazine or Beyond Reality or Gnostic News or High Times. And it would say stuff like, Now you can experience transcendental consciousness without spending 10 years in a Tibetan monastery. So he'd offer these kind of psychic meditation courses that are designed to help people traverse time and space. And to help with that, he taught them how to listen to his music because this music was the vehicle to get people to astrally travel. (laughs) His records are amazing to look at. They're kind of hand-drawn psychedelic covers. They're just ornate and gorgeous. And they always came with very detailed listening instructions written by him himself. As a guitarist, or as an instrumentalist, he was really good. He was classically trained, and in fact, he taught classical guitar for a while. He had kind of a weird experimental style, and he even made an instrument, (laughs) which was a guitar with six different types of wood, and he called his instrument was Impro Guitar, and it was Impro Music. Um, and so it was sort of like guitar and electronic, and he used some drum machines. So he's way ahead of his time, even for New Age music. He said he didn't seek to play music, but he wanted to play emotions. And he was a big proponent of frequency stuff, where he thought certain frequencies could control moods, and he could direct his listener into where they needed to go. He believed that the universe is composed of vibratory atoms and that vibration is movement and movement is time and that any creative spiritual breakthrough, man must rise above time and his music could help do that. So his records have been reissued. Uh, Numero has put out several of them. They are fairly expensive, but but you can still get some of the reissues reasonably. Through 71 to 77, he put out seven records and a single. And then all of a sudden, he burned and discarded everything related to his music and all his musical explorations and just totally dropped out of the limelight, which for him, he was getting to be a pretty big figure on the burgeoning New Age uh, scene. So that was kind of a a big thing. So he just kind of dropped out and he's kind of an interesting guy. I know I'm kind of going on about him. I even told Joe, I said, maybe I shouldn't do him because I feel like we could do a turntable talk, but maybe not enough stuff. But if you like that song at all, and I I think it's kind of beautiful myself, I would highly suggest go out and research Master Wilborn Burchette. Not really a cult guy per se, but he did kind of try to use his music to elevate people's consciousness. So really interesting. Do you know what he's doing now? Or is he just kind of, you said he might be well off already. Numero put out kind of a vague post about him. They did 
work with him to get permission to do the reissues, even though he seems still pretty wary or cautious about his music. They say he's done very well for himself. What that means, I don't know, but he's good. He's set. So whatever that means, who knows? He doesn't do interviews about his music. Really, after the 77, there's not not anything about his meditation courses or music or instrument or anything like that, other than, you know, referring back to what he talked about in the 70s, which he talked a lot back then, so there's a lot to go on. I'll post on the episode, I'll post a few of the album covers and the little booklets that come with them. They're just, they're awesome. Much like the Father Yod stuff. All those are great, too. Speaking of Father Yod, our last song for the night is going to be from a Yahuwah 13 album, and the song is sort of called Children's Song. That was Children's Song by Yahuwah 13, and the reason I led that off by saying it was sort of titled is because originally when the album was released in 1975, like most of Yod's albums, there are no titles. It's really one long song, and they just don't, the only reason they break it up is because the record 
stops and they somebody needs to flip it and so it's really just one long song but this one is a little bit different this song plays at the very end of the album so the end of side two and it was clearly not recorded at the same time as the rest of the album on the initial release there's no credit given to anyone it always says who played on the album so it'll say sunflower octavius gin isis whomever but on the reissue that i have from 2006 on swordfish records there's actually a sheet that comes with it so that you can get some more information. So it talks about who actually wrote that. And it was a guy named Hom, H-O-M. And I'm just going to read what they said about it. The children's song was sung by the children of the family. And side note, they're probably all of Yod's kids. <laughs> as they represented the next generation. Father said that his wisdom would be for our children and our children's children basically the fourth generation. We are seeing gifted children being born now. They are called rainbow children, indigo children, miracle children, children of the light, high souls, genies, etc. They precede the new age to help bring it in. And who knows, that generation might even end up being us, reincarnated, up to our old tricks again. Oh. It was sung by the kids. I think the song is really catchy it's pretty and like a lot of the other ones that we talked about or a few of the other ones that we talked about earlier it's really pretty in a way that makes me very uncomfortable but it's hard to get it out of your head i think it seems like in this episode any song that we kind of like we kind of like but we kind of feel uncomfortable liking it there's a lot of that going around yeah listening to some of these songs is kind of how i imagine People who don't like the word moist feel when somebody says it. You. All right. And I think that song leads perfectly into our trivia answers. So I'm going to go ahead and play eight clips again. And your job is just tell me the artist and the song. And I guess it's probably no secret by now that these are all songs with children, singers, or choirs. Track one. Track two. Just got to go. It'll blast you. So high in the sky. Don't blast you. So high in the sky. Track three. Le ciel dessus mes yeux. Je ne peux pas me effroyer. Track four. I had to leave the country. Track five. Track six. The lovers will rise up and the mountains touch the ground. And track eight. All right, Joe, what you got? I had a really hard time with the first three of these. 
So, number one, my guess was something like The White Stripes. It sounded similar. I just, I didn't know what the song was at all. You're very close. The number one was The Cramps, and the song is People Ain't No Good. Oh, okay, okay. Number two, I don't even have a guess for. It's not something I recognize in any way. Oh, okay. I thought you might have known the song. That is uh, Nuclear War Part 2 by Yola Tango. By Yola Tango. Tango. Okay, okay. Got it. As soon as you started saying it. Yep. Good one. Number three, the first thing I came up with was maybe this is Charlotte Gainsbourg as a kid singing on Serge Gainsbourg, an album by him. But that's all I have. No, it sounds like it could be that. It's actually Nico off the Desert Shore record, and it's a song called Le Petit Chevalier. Okay. A very good record. John Cale produced. Really weird. Yeah. Beautiful record. I can't, yeah, I just couldn't place it. The fourth song is one of my favorite songs of all time. It is Smog with Hit the Ground Running. Yeah, that song is fantastic. If there's anybody out there who hasn't listened to Smog Hit the Ground Running, you should. I love that song. Me too. Number five is XTC with Dear God. Yep. Good one. Number six is The Smiths. I thought it was Hang the DJ. Uh, It's called Panic. Their titles, I don't know. Yep, close enough. Number seven is Leonard Cohen, but I I don't know why I cannot get the title in my head. What's the title of that one? Last Year's Man by Leonard Cohen. Thank you. And the last song, to me, I mean, it's a Clash song. Uh, Career Opportunities, maybe, but I don't know... I'm not sure. You got it. That is The Clash with Career Opportunities. They um, re-recorded it for Sandinista with kids singing it. Okay. So trying to fill out some space on Sandinista, apparently. But um, yes, but you got it. It's The Clash with Career Opportunities. Nice. I feel good about finishing that strong, but those first three were rough. I should have mixed it up a little bit. But um, there is a lot of songs that use children singing. I tried not to do like just children choirs i try to do pop songs that use it so yeah really good try to find some songs i kind of like so you did pretty good that was that was kind of a tough one so hopefully everybody out there at home did real well on it too or got a few of them or maybe heard some stuff that they liked all right we want to thank our podcast network pantheon there's lots of other fantastic music podcasts on pantheon so uh swing by there and check out some other cool shows And please check us out on social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter, and our name on both of those is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. We have a Facebook page that is easy to find, and we have an email address if you'd like to send us any email. Our email address is highwayhifipodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, definitely reach out. Uh, We appreciate everybody who, who emails us and... I want to say hi to Hannah. She wrote a review for us on iTunes. She's been a she's been there since the very beginning. So thanks for drinking the flavor aid with us. I guess and uh, oh yeah, we do appreciate. <laughs> oh yeah, we do appreciate everybody who listens. And please reach out, uh, email us, send us a message on Facebook or Instagram or tweet or whatever, and. Um, if you can, if you do have time to write a review or, or rate us, I guess that helps other people find us. So, 
We appreciate everybody who does that. And please go out and support record stores or support artists. There's lots of streaming shows. I think the, as we're recording this, we'll already pass when I put it out. I think tomorrow is one of the record store days, which unfortunately is uh, very different this year. And it's probably been hard on a lot of record stores to not have that singular day that really helps their income. So do what you can to celebrate record store day. Maybe buy some records. I know I probably will. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And we will see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.